Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. Welcome to this week's episode of the Lone Star Podcast. We enjoy studying the Word of God together, the pastor and the rabbi going through the Torah portion every week. And we come to this week's Torah portion, and it covers a lot of text this week, numbers, chapters 25, 26, 27, 28, and 29. And it's called in Hebrew, Pinchas, the name of a person. Your English Bible in the book of Numbers might call him Phineas. And so that's the two different names, the English pronunciation or the Hebrew pronunciation. And as we jump in, this Torah portion begins in Numbers 25, verse 10, which means last week ended at 25, verse 9. So what we need to do is review a moment what happens in the first part of Numbers 25. The people of Israel have allowed idolatry to come into their camp. They've allowed pagan worship and pagan influences from their neighbors to come in. The Midianite people are living in the land of Moab among the Moabites. And so are the people of Israel because they're about to enter the promised land, crossing the Jordan River and heading into the land of Canaan. But what they have done is they have allowed themselves to be influenced by these false God worshipers, including when you get to verse 6, of chapter 25 one of the sons of israel came and brought to his relatives a midianite woman in the sight of moses in the sight of all the congregation while they were weeping at the door of the tent of meeting so the people were repenting for their sin before the lord and this man goes into a time of public idolatry public immorality bringing this non-jewish woman this pagan worshiping woman into his own tent obviously for carnal or immoral reasons. And what happens is Pinhas, the priest, the grandson of Aaron, son of Eleazar, goes, grabs his spear, kills the man and the woman inside the tent, and brings judgment on him for his sin. So now we get into this week's portion, verse 10. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Pinhas, the son of Eleazar, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Behold, I give him my covenant of peace. And it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. So what we see for historical reasons is that solidifies the priestly line through the family tree of Aaron to Eleazar to Pinchas, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it also, you have an interesting verse, Rabbi. What's interesting here is he was jealous with my jealousy. God says. So talk about the family line, but first address that statement from the Lord, he was jealous with my jealousy. So it's interesting that they translate it as jealousy because the terminology that I think we would use uh, is actually zealous with a Z, that there was a zealousness to to take care of what needs to be taken care of and not per se uh, a jealousy that God was waiting for someone to stand up and do something about this horrible thing that was taking place and that Pinchas was the one who did it. 
What's amazing, before I get to the family line for a moment, is the reward that he's given is a covenant of peace. Here he does this violent, violent act with a spear, killing people in front of everyone, and the response is a reward of peace. We over and over again talk about the verse that God gives strength to the nation and God blesses his nation with peace. That peace doesn't come, sadly, automatically. It comes with strength. If you study history, most peace treaties that have ever been signed came after one side was defeated by the other. People rarely just put down their arms, sadly, and just talk to each other. And it's just an important lesson. You know, when people talk about, let's say today, the Israeli army, why are they attacking? Why do they do what they do? And of course, we're defending ourselves, but we also recognize that the only way we can accomplish peace is if we defeat those who destroy us. We defeated Egypt in war, and that led to peace. We defeated Jordan in war, and that led to peace. And you see over here, Pinchas defeating the evil, doing an act which is violent and, and sadly having to use a weapon. But that ultimately brings peace. That's an important lesson uh, just to learn from that part of the story. And then, yes, cementing the fact that his children are going to be the priests. This also, the actions that we do lead to have impact for generations forever. Abraham does the act of finding God. His sons follow his example. And now throughout history, the actions that we take and decisions that we make now, we learn from this, can have impact for generations, for thousands of years. And then we're reminded of that over here. Pinchas does one act for the sake of God, and the result is that his descendants are the priests forever. And uh, an important lesson for us just to remember that uh, actions that we do now are not just for the here and now. And Rabbi, you've told us that when you go to synagogue each morning, even today in 2018, you have a Torah reading or leadership in the synagogue from the priests, the Kohanim. So they are able to trace their family lineage all the way back through Pinchas, today's reading in the Torah. Their family tree is traced all the way down into today. So the Kohanim, the priests that you deal with today, are directly related to this man that we read about in Numbers 25. Absolutely. And that's a remarkable thing that people can know, that they are descendants going back all the way to Aaron, to this great man, Pinchas. And it's something which you're reminded of on a daily basis. I would go to synagogue. Uh, there are people who we know are the priests. And that, again, like I said, all comes as a result of their actions. They made a decision to do something good, and the ramifications are eternal for all their descendants. When we get to the next couple of verses in chapter 25 of Numbers, the identity of the sinners, if you will, are released. It says, for all of history, in chapter 25, verse 14, the name of the slain man of Israel was Zimri, the son of Salu a leader of a father's household among the Simeonites. And the next verse says the name of the Midianite woman was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was head of the people of a father's household in Midian. So what you mentioned to us last week in the ending of our discussion was these were prominent people. These were leaders who had responsibility to do what was right. 
and they fell into sin, and their identity is released here. And in a lot of discussion, uh, Pastor, uh, you just highlighted a question one could ask. Why are their names not mentioned uh, when the act first took place last week? Why do we wait until this week to hear that revealed? And everyone can, this is an opportunity for everyone to be a biblical commentator and think of your own reasons. Why would you think that God would do that and not put it in the very beginning of the story? But, but one idea can be, that it doesn't matter. Don't think. Don't make the mistake of thinking that this was only a sin uh, because of the uh, level that these people were on, because they were prominent people. It's a sin no matter what. It has to be dealt with no matter what. And we don't want anybody to think that it's somehow related specifically uh, to who they were. But once we do learn who they were, now we can really understand why it was so devastating uh, for everyone to see the leaders. And again, you see the lesson of how careful uh, leaders have to be to make sure that the influence that they have on their flock, on their people, is a positive one. Uh, Living by example and not in any way leading the people astray through their sins. This brings us to Numbers chapter 26, and it begins by saying, It came about after the plague, the Lord spoke to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest. The Lord says, take a census, verse 2, of the congregation of the sons of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's household, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. So what the people are told to do is take a census of all the military age males in the people of Israel. And this is very similar to what happened at the beginning of the book of Numbers when the Lord had them take a census. And that's why we call this the book of Numbers. They're giving a count of how many people are there but this is a new count because remember the older generation was given the punishment that they had to die out they would not be allowed to enter the promised land and so what we see at the end of all of the counting you go through chapter 26 and it goes through all the tribes and all the different families and it tells all the names and all the numbers of how many military age men were in this battle preparation and able to serve in the military and what you get all the way down at the end of chapter 26 verse 51 those who were numbered of the sons of israel were 601,730 and if you go back 38 years to chapter 1 verse 46 of numbers the total was 603,550 So in round numbers, in 38 years, you've lost 2,000 military-age males from 603,000 down to 601,000. And some could argue that staying about flat is okay. Others would say, no, that is a demonstration of the curse because the Lord said, be fruitful and multiply. So they should have increased where they've actually decreased slightly Another sign of judgment of the people for their unfaithfulness and the cause of the wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Absolutely. And you do see, you know, they, they were told that their numbers are going to, that these people are going to be killed out, that the nation is, you know, the, the young people specifically will go into the next land. And it's sad and it's tragic to see uh, that things just stayed flat, but it's exactly uh, what you said, Pastor. It's a result of that curse, of the punishment uh, for the sin of the spies. And now you see uh, that it's really playing out. As you get to the end of chapter 26, you come to verse 57, and it says, Those who were numbered of the Levites, according to the family of Gershon, Kohath, of Merari, 
You have all of these things. Verse 62 says those of who were numbered were 23,000, except in this case it says every male from a month old and upward, since they were not numbered among the sons of Israel, since no inheritance was given to them. So two questions. One is, why were the other people numbered from age 20 and up? Here the priests were numbered, or the Levites specifically, from one month of age and up. Why that? And then talk again about what we've discussed before, how the Levites were not given territory as an inheritance. Yeah, so the census of the people, uh, the broader tribes, was really a preparation for military. Uh, They were of military age, they were going to serve, and therefore they're counted from age 20. The census of the Levites, the idea is that the Levites begin their service, so to speak, the moment they're born. They're the people of the temple, of the sanctuary, of the Mishkan, and they begin their service immediately, begin training and learning how to do that. So they start from a much early, even though they start serving, perhaps actually in the temple or the tabernacle at a later age, they have to be prepared at a younger age. And the training begins immediately, and they're sort of drafted, so to speak, into God's army of spiritual service at the earliest of ages. And then talk about their not receiving land as an inheritance. Yes, and part of that training is to learn to be, you're not in a family where your father is going out and working the field and bringing home crops where you own land. Uh, They did not. There were specific cities that were designated for them. They did not own their property, and the people of Israel supported them through tithes and through other gifts that they would give to them. But they were very different than everyone else in terms of that. When the land is going to be divided up in the prophets after the end of the five books of Moses, they're not going to be part of that. They are supposed to be dedicated exclusively to the service of God. And that means no worries, uh, no ownership, no anything on your mind other than spirituality. This brings us to Numbers chapter 27 and a quite interesting answer from the Lord to a really practical problem. And that is, who would inherit property or who would inherit land? Well, if a man dies, it would go to his son. If he didn't have a son, it would go to his brother. If he didn't have a brother, it would go to his uncle. What if he had none of those male relatives? And so it says in chapter 27, verse 1, the daughters of Zelophehad the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, all the way through this family tree, they stood before Moses in verse 2 and before Eliezer and said, Our father died in the wilderness, verse 3, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together in the company of Korah. He died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord. He didn't know what to say. So we'll get into the answer from the Lord in verse 6. But first of all, I'd like you to comment on this is a very practical problem. And they did what I think was the right thing to do. They came to their spiritual leader and said, we need help. It's a very beautiful idea uh, when you really think about it. And you see that uh, they had such a passion for the land of Israel that they're not going to sit back and say, we're not going to be part of this. They, they so desperately wanted that connection. And they could have said to themselves, well, somebody, you know, we'll, we'll marry someone who will do it. We'll, we'll find some kind of a way. But no, they have such a passion for Israel that they demand to have their portion, even as women. Remember, this is a time where it wasn't necessarily the norm that a woman would come forward and make this kind of a request. But nevertheless, uh, they do so. And we really learn about their passion for Israel and also God's response. On a certain level, their passion drove the response 
which is that they're going to be able to get land. God has to actually bring the request before God in verse 5. Uh, they don't know the answer. This has never been brought up before. So A, their passion and their courage to go ask Moses this question, and B, to see that in the merit of their desiring Israel so badly, they're actually given that land. So this results in a practical solution. The Lord spoke to Moses in verse 6, verse 7. The daughters are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers. You shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. So that's the dealing of the situation of this specific family. But then the rules or the procedures were laid out that it's going to go to a son. If not to a son, it's going to go to his brothers. If no brothers, it's going to go to his uncles. If no father has no brothers, verse 11, you shall give his inheritance to his nearest relative in his own family. So this sets up a inheritance procedure going forward. But what I think is this shows God cares about men and women equally. We go back to Genesis chapter 1. The Lord said, let us make man in our image, image of God, imago Dei, it says in Latin. He made them male and female. So while there are procedures for inheritance, this does not agree with those who say women are not important to God or they're less important to God. They had a right to this land. Moses went before the Lord and the Lord says, give it to them. And that's one of the messages that you see throughout the Bible, how in a time in the world where women, I think, were probably treated uh, like chattel, uh, like, like property, uh, not only are they given respect, but they're treated with dignity. And in this particular case, given the right to own land, uh, which wasn't the norm, and something which you see throughout the Bible over and over again, women in positions of leadership and women in positions of equality. We continue in Numbers chapter 27, and we come to verse 12. It's a really sad story, Rabbi. The Lord says to Moses, go up to this mountain of Ibarim and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. And when you have seen it, you too shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Now, gathered to your people means you're going to die and be buried in the family grave. But the earlier verse 12, Moses, I want you to be able to see it, but you can't go there. This must have been a strange emotional time, a painful time for Moses. You ask yourself, what what was God intending uh, through this? What was the goal? What was the reason why God wanted Moses just to see it? And I think that that you know, on, on the one hand, it sounds like it's almost unfair that God presented Moses with this challenge in this way. On the other hand, apparently. Just seeing the land of Israel, just seeing the land of God, just seeing it does something for a person. And God certainly didn't want to torture Moses. He wanted to give him an opportunity. And that's what's happening over here. But very dramatic and very powerful. I want to go back to something that we discussed on two programs ago, I believe. And that is, you get to live in the land of Israel. I get to visit often the land of Israel. You and I get to do something Moses was never allowed to do. It's something which I, I think about all the time here Moses the leader himself wasn't allowed to come to the land of Israel and we're blessed with that opportunity I'm blessed to live here you're blessed to visit here it's something which just adds to the magnitude of the blessing that we have now that Moses knows he's soon to die and 
he cares about the people of Israel going forward and wants them to have success and also be led well. He prays in verse 16, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, which is not a common title for the Lord, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And we know what ends up is, Joshua will be appointed as the next leader of Israel, but what is interesting and I think insightful here is that Moses cares so much about the future and about the people that he has led for all these years. He prays the Lord, would you raise up a leader who would be a great shepherd for them? I think this continues the theme of Moses and his care for the people of Israel. We've seen him pray for the people of Israel uh, over and over again, despite their sins, despite their rebelling against him. He prays uh, for their well-being. And here as well, he's concerned. You know, a lot of leaders don't think about who's going to come next. It's me. It's all about me. For Moses, it wasn't about him. It was about the people of Israel and God. And he wants to make sure that there's someone in place and that there be that continuity. And that's something which I see, you see, again, the humility of Moses and his concern for the people. He just wants to make sure that that person is in place. So at the end of chapter 27, you get to verse 18. The Lord said to Moses, take Joshua ben Nun, Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him, and have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. You shall put some of your authority on him, in order that the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his command they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. So verse 22, Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. And then verse 23, he laid his hands on him and commissioned him. So, Rabbi, you see the political slash military leader is going to be Joshua. The spiritual slash religious leader is going to be Eliezer the priest. So you've got the son of Aaron, Eliezer, and the protege of Moses, Joshua. This is really the changing of the guard. Absolutely. It's a very dramatic moment where... Things are being put into place. We want to make sure the continuity is there. And I wanted to take a moment and talk about Joshua. Here you see it wasn't the son of Moses, but rather it was Joshua. And the way Joshua is specifically uh, described is, is quite uh, powerful. We're told that Joshua earlier on in other places, that he was a person who was always there, always uh, by Moses' side. He took care of whatever needed to be done. He learned from Moses. He was the ultimate student. And that's why it's not a birthright. It's not something which is just passed down automatically. We don't see any kind of nepotism, but it's who's the person who's most qualified uh, to be the leader, to be the general, uh, to lead things forward. And, and Joshua uh, earns that right. In the case of Aaron, remember, that was promised uh, to be something which was passed down from generation to generation. And apparently that's going to be something in the genes where they do have the spirituality that's necessary to be the level of priest. This brings us into Numbers chapter 28, and it's a very detailed instruction for the types of offerings. Verse 2 
the Lord said to Moses, command the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be careful to present my offering, my food for my offerings by fire of a soothing aroma to me at their appointed time. They were daily offerings. There were Sabbath offerings. There was a monthly offering. There was the Passover is mentioned in chapters 28, verse 16, the first day of the month of Nisan. Then you have the new moon types of offerings. Verse 26 talks about the Feast of Weeks, which is Shavuot. Then you're supposed to have in chapter 29, verse 1, on the first day of the month and the seventh month, this is called Rosh Hashanah, the new year. So all of these different celebrations, all of these different offerings, and if you take the time to read chapters 28 and 29, you got to make notes, Rabbi. This is serious detail about what kind of animal, how many animals. Like on a chapter 29, verse 12, it talks about the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. You're supposed to have 13 young bulls, 2 rams, 14 male lambs. The male goat was mandatory. This is really specific. And to be obedient to the Lord, you have to be very careful here. Absolutely. And remember, most of these commands regarding the sacrifices were for the temple or the sanctuary, the Mishkan, and that's for the Kohanim. That's for the priests and the Levites to be involved with. So it wasn't something we today, uh, because we don't have a temple, we read these verses on the specific holidays to remind ourselves of what they had to be. But yes, very technical, very detailed. It had to be done the right way. Going back to your question about the Levites being counted and talked about from the age of one month old, they had to learn this. They had to know this. Uh, it goes back to that time of being trained properly to make sure that everything is done properly. So before we finish this discussion, let's ask you, you as the Jewish people, you do not have a temple. You do not have a tabernacle any longer. You do not engage in animal sacrifice because there's no altar. We as Christians need to understand the scriptures. And what does it mean today for Jews and Christians to bring an offering to the Lord? Now, most people think that's giving money to the church or to the synagogue. And that's part of it, is giving money from the Lord that he gave to us to his ministry work. But what lessons can we take today from these very specific instructions about types of animals that we do not participate in today? What lesson can we learn? First and foremost, there's no doubt, and, and Pastor, you are the one who has really talked about this on our podcast together about the details, that the details matter. That's for sure. But to also recognize that we're talking about spirituality. And when it comes to spirituality, we as limited human beings don't necessarily understand how it all works. But God is telling us how it works. The same God who made our souls, the same God who made our body is telling us this is what you need to do in order to be spiritual. This is what you need to do in order to connect. And we have to see that and remember that and remember that uh, we can never veer from that. Even if we can't perform the actual sacrifices, there are other things that we can do. Today, we do things in our faith to remember uh, what was done in the times of the holidays, even though we can't do the sacrifices. And we learn about it, and we talk about it, and we read the verse. But most importantly, the idea of obedience, the details, and recognizing that if this is what God said needs to be done, uh, and that's a lesson which we can apply in our times as well. If God is saying, this is how you reach spirituality, this is how you reach godliness, then we have to be people who do that. And we come to the very last couple of verses here in Numbers 29 as we end this week's Torah portion. You shall present these to the Lord at your appointed times. 
Verse 40, Moses spoke to the sons of Israel in accordance with all that the Lord had commanded Moses. I think the lesson here is, even if we can't understand what it is that we're to do exactly or why we are to do it, we are to best understand to our abilities what God has asked us to do, how he's told us to serve him, and then we do it completely, we do it willingly, we do it cheerfully. And we try to serve God to the best of our abilities simply because he is worthy of our worship. We live in times, Pastor, where both of us know how many things are pulling us away uh, from that worship and pulling us away from seeing the clarity of God. And I think that sitting down together as we do on a weekly basis and seeing the messages that we've seen from this portion uh, make us recognize how critical it is that we learn the lessons from this portion, follow the details, make ourselves worthy of his worship as you say it. And I think that as long as we continue to do so, we will, with God's help, be worthy of that worship. This concludes our weekly discussion of the Torah portion this week called Pinhas, Numbers chapters 25, 26, 27, 28, and 29. A lot of text this week. Rabbi, I always enjoy studying the Word of God together. We learn better how to worship the Lord. And I want to say Shabbat Shalom to you and your family. Thank you. Shabbat Shalom to you and to all the listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.